Welcome to another episode of Astronomy Daily. I'm Steve Dunkley, your guest host. Thank you for joining me. And on with the show. With your guest host, Steve Dunkley. It's great to be back with you again. We have a couple of different topics to cover today, which I hope you enjoy. And joining me, as always, is Hallie, the intrepid AI reporter. How are you today, Hallie? Going fine, Steve. And what's new in your world? I'm looking forward to seeing the eclipse. All right, that's coming up soon. It's the last one for the year. Oh, Hallie, I just don't like the idea of getting up at 4 a.m. to see it. You big baby. I thought you liked the big pretty moon. Oh, well, I do, Hallie. It's big and shiny, but it keeps inconvenient hours, you know. You silly man. I'll show you the video afterwards then. Well, I knew I could depend on you. Thank you, Hallie. How about some news? Okay. Auroras set off spectacular light shows in the night sky, but they are also illuminating another reason the ozone layer is being eaten away. Although humans are to blame for much of the ozone layer's depletion, observations of a type of aurora known as an isolated proton aurora have revealed a cause of ozone depletion that comes from space. Before now, the influence of these particles were only vaguely known. Now, an international research team has found that the effects of isolated proton auroras caused a nearly 250-mile-wide, 400-kilometers, hole in the ozone layer, which gaped right below where an aurora occurred. Isolated proton auroras may not be as flashy as the northern lights and their southern counterpart, but they are still visible to the human eye. An onslaught of plasma released by the sun brings highly energetic ions and electrons with it. Such particles end up caught in Earth's inner and outer Van Allen radiation belts, which keep the particles from bombarding the planet directly and turning it into a sun-blasted wasteland like Mars. Particles that make it to the inner radiation belt can mess with Earth's atmosphere when they sneak into magnetic field lines. The nitrogen and hydrogen oxides that are released by the particles' interactions with the atmosphere deplete ozone. However, this only goes for the ozone layer in the mesosphere, the more critical layer below, the stratosphere, remains unaffected. On this day in 2007, on October 23, the Space Shuttle Discovery launched the Harmony Module to the International Space Station. The Harmony Module is a utility hub 14 feet wide and 24 feet long, or about the length of a minibus. It joined the European Space Agency's Columbus Module and Japan's Kipo Laboratory and serves as the crew quarters for the American astronauts. Once it was installed, the space station grew from about the size of a three-bedroom house to something more like a five-bedroom house. When astronauts delivered Harmony to the space station, they left it temporarily attached to the Unity node. After the shuttle left, Astronauts used the space station's robotic arm to move the shuttle docking port out of the way at the Destiny module. This made room for Harmony to then dock at its permanent home next to the Destiny module. Meanwhile on Mars, NASA's Perseverance rover is getting set to lighten its load a little on the red planet. Perseverance landed inside Mars' Jezero crater in February 2021 to explore for signs of ancient Martian life and collect samples for future return to Earth and so far. The car-sized rover has drilled 14 rock cores in the Martin surface to date, two apiece from seven target stones, and it will likely drop half of them in November or December. This is a safeguard to protect the overall Mars Sample Return Project which is a joint effort of NASA and the European Space Agency. The basic plan calls for Perseverance to deliver the samples to a NASA lander that sports a built-in rocket that will launch the material into orbit. 
An ESA provided orbiter will snag the samples and haul them back to Earth. They could land here as soon as 2033. And even though Steve will be fast asleep, here's what's happening with the last eclipse of the year for 2022. The moon will pass in front of the sun in the last solar eclipse of the year on Tuesday, October 25th, but you may have to wake up early if you hope to watch it online. The partial solar eclipse of October 25th is the second and final solar eclipse of 2022, and will be visible to observers across most of Europe, as well as parts of Northeast Africa, the Middle East and Western Asia. The eclipse begins at 4.58 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 8.58 GMT, when the moon first begins to cross the sun as seen from the northern Atlantic Ocean. It will move east over the next four hours, ending at 9.01 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 13.01 GMT, just south of India. If you don't live in those parts of the Earth where the solar eclipse is visible, you do have options to watch it live online. The Royal Observatory Greenwich will host its live stream at 5.05 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 9.05 GMT, with astronomers commentating on the event. Astrophysicist Gianluca Massi of the Virtual Telescope Project in Sicano, Italy will also host a live stream at 5 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 9 o'clock GMT. Finally, if you really want to wake up early, you can join the timeandate.com webcast at 4.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 8.30 GMT to see the start of the eclipse. And that's all I have today, sleepyhead. What sleepyhead? Is there no respect? Just kidding. What have you got for us today? Oh, okay. Thank you, Hallie. Well, over to India. OneWeb has begun assembling its satellite internet constellation again. 36 of OneWeb's broadband spacecraft took to the skies, launching atop the GSLV Mark III rocket, one of the most powerful rockets in use by the Indian Space Research Organization, from the Satish Dhawan Space Center in Shiharikota at 2.37 p.m., Eastern uh, Daylight Time, and uh, that's uh, 6.37 General Mean Time. Indian Space Research Organization Chairman Somanath said they have started the celebration early following the successful launch, which coincided with the Festival of Light celebrations in India this weekend. He added that they had accomplished the orbit very accurately. The mission was the first for OneWeb since February when Russia invaded Ukraine and shook up the spaceflight landscape, among other things. And it was the second operational flight of India's GSLV Mark III rocket, the first commercial multi-satellite mission of its kind for the Indian rocket, a flight that was overseen by New Space India Limited, which is ISRO's commercial arm. OneWeb is building, an out, building out a constellation of 648 broadband satellites before today. Six, uh, 426 of those spacecraft had reached orbit, all of them atop Russian-made Soyuz rockets operated by the French company Ariane Space. But the ongoing Russian invasion, which began on February 24, splintered that spacecraft partnership, forcing OneWeb to look elsewhere for rocket rides. The London-based company quickly found some. OneWeb announced in March that it had signed a launch contract with SpaceX and then revealed a month later that it had inked a similar deal with New Space India Limited. Now, scholars may have just discovered a fragment of the world's oldest complete star map. The map segment, which was found beneath the text on a sheet of medieval parchment, is thought to be a copy of the long-lost star catalogue of the 2nd century BC Greek astronomer Hipparchus, who made the first 
earliest known attempt to chart the entire night sky. The fragment was concealed beneath nine leaves, or folios, of religious codex Clemassi Rescriptus at St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. The codex is a palimpsest, meaning the original writings have been scraped from their parchment to make way for a collection of Christian, Palestinian, Aramaic texts telling stories from the Old and New Testaments. The researchers thought that even earlier Christian texts were buried beneath the pages, but multispectral imaging revealed something more surprising. Numbers stating in degrees the length and width of the constellation Corona Borealis and coordinates for the stars located at its farthest corners. The researchers published their findings on October 18 in the Journal for the History of Astronomy. I was excited from the beginning, study researcher Victoria Ginsberg, a science historian at the French National Centre for Scientific Research in Paris. It was immediately clear we had star coordinates. Wouldn't that be exciting? The researchers' excitement grew when the precise coordinates enabled them to estimate the date when the coordinates were written down, roughly 129 BC, when Hipparchus was a veteran astronomer puzzling overnight skies. That's even, that is really exciting. Historically referring to the uh, referred to as the father of scientific astronomy, Hipparchus spent much of his later years making astronomical observations from the island of Rhodes. Not much documentation of his life remains, but historical texts credit him with a number of impressive scientific advances, such as accurately modelling the motions of the sun and the moon, inventing a brightness scale to measure the stars, further developing trigonometry, and possibly inventing the astrolabe, a handheld disc-shaped device that can calculate the precise positions of heavenly bodies. References to Hipparchus famed catalogue survive, notably engraved on the globe, held atop the shoulders of Atlas, the Italian marble sculpture. That's brilliant. This is Astronomy Daily on the Sun-Ether Band. So hopefully you've been aware of the Orionid meteor shower that has been decorating our skies these last few nights, especially viewable in the early mornings, unless you've been near me as we've had the worst skies for viewing, that is constant grey cloud coverage, very depressing. The peak of the Aronoid shower period was um, October 21, which was only a couple of nights ago, but the full shower period stretches on until November 22, with the meteors radiating from a point near the upraised club of the Orion constellation. And the ruddy-coloured star near that point is Betelgeuse. Uh, so check your star charts for the orientation in your region. Typically, under a dark sky with no moon, the Orion, or, Orionids uh, exhibit a maximum about uh, of about 10 to 20 meteors per hour. And fascinatingly, they're fast movers at this point. Um, occasionally they leave persistent trains in the sky as well as sometimes producing bright fireballs. The Orionid meteors that we observe come from Halley's Comet and this comet uh, orbits the sun every 76 years or so and like a stream coming, steam coming from a locomotive, dust particles are expelled from the comet's nucleus and are left behind in its path and we intercept this path late in October of each year. The nucleus of the comet loses between uh, 3 to 10 feet or 1 to 3 metres of material each passage through the inner solar system measuring 5 by 9 miles. Uh, 8 by 15 kilometres in size. It can handle eons of orbits around the sun. 
The official name for Halley's Comet is 1P slash Halley. It was the first comet to have its return predicted, and Edmund Halley was the one who made that calculation. The comet typically gets bright enough to be visible with the recorded observations since uh, 240 um, a, um, AD, and it's uh, one of the only few comets named not after its discoverer, but after the person who calculated its orbit. Unlike most solar system objects, the comet orbits the sun in a retrograde orbit, going around the sun in the opposite direction than we do. Its orbit is also tilted a bit to ours, and it spends most of its time below the plane of our path. Presently, it's at the farthest point from the sun near the head of the constellation Hydra, and it's too faint for us to see it. The, uh, the meteors are produced from Halley's Comet's particles on its inbound leg and they're moving in one direction and we're moving the opposite direction and the combined speeds produce fast-moving meteors. But when we encounter its partic particles from the outbound leg, uh, where it's leaving when it's leaving the inner solar system, we reach that point in early May and they produce the Eta Aquarids meteor shower and this comet generates two meteor showers for us. As for most meteor showers, the hours between midnight and dawn are the best for viewing. I love meteor showers too. It's fan fantastic viewing. I've, I remember lying in the backyard getting eaten by mosquitoes, watching up and seeing the most magnificent shower. And I remember seeing Halley's Comet when I was a muso once upon a time in another life. But that's another story. And that's all we have time for this episode of Astronomy Daily. Thank you for joining us. And remember, you can catch up with all the episodes of Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson, as well as every episode of our podcast, Astronomy Daily, at this address, spacenuts.io. So head over there and click the links. Enjoy everything you can enjoy of space science and stuff a big thank you to all that joined us today i'm steve dunkley keeping the studio chair warm while andrew is away using a norwegian ocean liner to test the theory of displacement thanks again hallie hello hallie come in hallie what oh sorry i had a little snooze there you are the cheekiest ai i've ever met you're so easy see you next time everyone See you next time. Wednesday, the podcast with your guest host, Steve Dunkley.